This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Jeffrey Winters, Vice Chair of the Division of Transfusion Medicine at Mayo Clinic, to provide us an update on convalescent plasma and the science behind it. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Winters. My pleasure. So an update on plasma, convalescent plasma. So I think when we, since we've last chatted about this, probably the most important thing is that the expanded access protocol or the EAP has shut down. And I think the question that you had sent me earlier is what in the world does that mean for those physicians out there who may be seeking to transfuse COVID convalescent plasma to their patient? Things are a little complicated. You know, it's the government. Things are always complicated. So the EAP submitted to the FDA the findings of a very large data set, which uh, subsequently was examined many different ways. And because of that data that came in, the Food and Drug Administration decided to change convalescent plasma from the either your options to be able to get it were as part of an IRB approved protocol, either as an individual emergency use, an EIND, uh, emergency investigation or new drug application, or under the EAP. So the EAP is now gone. Those other two options still actually do exist. But what the FDA has done is they've, they've issued an emergency use authorization, which basically means that, yeah, you can use this stuff to treat your patients. This is where it gets a little confusing. In the context of the EUA, they define certain characteristics, certain things that must be done in order for those products, those convalescent, COVID convalescent plasma products to sort of be transfused under the EUA, okay? So characteristics of the product. One of them, they said specifically that there needed to be a signal cutoff of 12 or greater on the product with the test being the uh, orthovitrose SARS-CoV-2 IgG assay. Okay, so many blood centers were testing these products with the combo IgM and IgG. That's what the products that they had in inventory were being tested with. That doesn't count, has to be just the IgG. So what the FDA has said is that they're going to sort of look the other way, if you will, meaning that they're going to use their uh, own discretion of enforcement and for 90 days following the issuance of this EUA, which was on September 2nd, people can continue to transfuse the convalescent plasma that was collected under the EAP, even though it might not have been tested with that specific assay. Now, what they've said is that if you do transfuse somebody with these products that were collected under the EAP and do not fulfill that particular cutoff, that you must notify that patient or their next of kin, whoever's giving permissions, and, and tell them that this is an investigational product and have them sign a specific consent for that. Now, once that 90 days is up and all of this stuff that's sitting on the shelf has either been relabeled because maybe it was tested with that right, correct test, or maybe between now and then, the various blood collectors will submit data to the FDA and get them to approve a different test, or we just use it all up. Once that 90 days is up, then the blood centers are gonna have to be transfusing plasma that was tested with that specific test or any new test that the FDA approved. Now, 
once that quote new plasma is out there, it's going to be labeled as either high titer or low titer with high titer being above their defined cutoff. So currently again, it's that orthovitreous uh, SARS-CoV-2 IgG with a signal cutoff of 12 or greater. Okay, that's the high titer stuff and the low titer stuff. When somebody goes to transfuse this stuff, this is again, once that 90 days expires, then there's a particular information sheet that the FDA has written that must go to the patient or their family with the transfusion. There's an information sheet that must go to the physician that's ordering the blood product to be transfused. So that needs to go. And then what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to give the high titer stuff. Now, we all know that blood shortages occur and it's anticipated that we're going to see issues because in some studies, a third or more of donors are not meeting that signal cutoff ratio. And so we're probably going to have some of this low titer stuff around and it might come to a situation where either because of blood type of the patient or just overall inventory, we might not have the high titer stuff available. In that case, you can give the low titer stuff but you must obtain consent from the patient to give the low titer stuff, okay? So again, it's gonna be a separate consent beyond the consent for the transfusion. So that's sort of where we stand. So at this point in time, how does somebody get this stuff? It's the same as before. You ask your blood bank to, for, for it, and then they're gonna be requesting it from their blood supplier. And at least for this transition period, there's gonna be this additional form. I should point out one other thing. Remember I told you there was that little fact sheet that's gonna to have to be handed out once we have the fully tested EUA stuff. The FDA did specifically state that you should not hand that out with the investigational stuff. So in this transition period. So I was taking notes as you were talking to us uh, there. And, uh, so let me just recap and, and let me know if I'm understanding this right. So as you said before, with our first introduction to convalescent plasma, there are three ways to obtain it. You could have somebody have an IRB approved research study uh, would be one way. You could have somebody that has their emergency investigational uh, use of the drug, so that compassionate use for a particular patient. And then we had that expanded access protocol, which uh, was kind of in between where people could get access to convalescent plasma and share some information uh, back with this expanded access program so that we could accrue data. Now that, that we're in this phase where the expanded access has gone away and we're transitioning to this uh, emergency use authorization, this sort of 90 days of flux, uh, sort of after this day of flux, it sounds like uh, what you're saying is we're really going to have, there's gonna be some of the uh, variability in the convalescent plasma is going to be minimized and that we're really aiming for a high titer convalescent plasma product. Yeah, I mean, I think the key here is that the FDA in their emergency use authorization guidelines has defined a cutoff. They've said, if you want to call it high titer, it has to be above this. Whereas prior to that, blood centers may have been using a variety of tests. So there are a number of different tests that they were utilizing. I mean, optimally, what we should look at is actually a neutralization assay or actually detecting whether the antibodies neutralize virus that you're trying to grow. But those sorts of assays are not high throughput assays, right? They're more manual. And, and in many circumstances, they involve either using the actual virus 
sort of dangerous, or some sort of reporter virus. So again, very few labs, not high throughput. So we took these other serologic tests, most of them these EIA tests, and sort of figured out what cutoff correlates with this titer. And essentially that's what the FDA has done, looking at the data set that came out of the expanded access program and set up that cutoff. So again, it should be a bit more standardized. Thank you for clarifying that. I think this really helps our physician listeners, uh, our pathology physician uh, listeners as well, kind of understand what kind of products and, and what the uh, program is. It, it does seem like a little bit of alphabet soup with the acronyms, but <laughs> so EUA, Emergency Use Authorization, that's what we're headed towards. You were talking about what we've kind of learned so far with convalescent plasma. Can you recap mm -hmm. that for our listeners? Uh, what's what information has been published at this point? I know this is really an evolving area of the literature, but uh, you've been involved in tracking this. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what the EAP showed, okay? So again, important to realize that the EAP is not a randomized controlled trial. So this was a program to make this available with its primary goal looking at safety. So first of all, what we saw was that these are relatively safe products. I mean, we had concerns giving plasma products to people with underlying respiratory illness, right? Are we gonna trigger a bunch of trolley or transfusion-related acute lung injury? Or are we gonna cause other problems? And essentially, our safety data showed that there really were no untoward effects beyond what one would normally see with the transfusion of plasma. Some other things that people were a bit concerned about was um, immune enhancement. Could it make the infections worse? We didn't see anything that suggested that, okay? So we had this very large sample size and we decided to say, okay, very large sample size. Let's see if we can see if there's some sort of signal with regard to efficacy. Again, study was not designed to do that. And out of those tens of thousands of transfusions, we had about 3,000 or so transfusions where individuals got one unit. So we were able to look at those single unit transfusions. And there were a couple of things that were noted. One, the higher the titer of the antibody, the more antibody in the unit of plasma, the better those patients did on their seven and 30 day mortality. Now, again, we weren't comparing plasma versus no plasma. We were comparing plasma with different levels of antibody and said, okay, those that got the, the stuff with the higher titers in it did better than these other ones. So the question of plasma versus no plasma, does it make a, a difference, still is up in the air. And so that's one of the things that we need to wait on appropriately powered randomized controlled trials, okay? There have been some smaller studies uh, that were randomized that were stopped mostly because they noted, uh, for example, that the patients that they were transfusing these antibodies to already had antibodies. So what's the point of that? There are also some smaller trials that have gone to completion that have shown some efficacy. Back to the EAP. Another thing that we saw was that those individuals who got the plasma earlier in the disease course appear to do better than those that got it later. So uh, if you look at what's up on the preprint servers, again, these are papers that has not completed the entire peer review process. You'll notice that it was saying, which was consistent again with what others have seen in these smaller randomized controlled trials that, that have pushed stuff out there, that earlier was better. Three days from basically the diagnosis, if they were within that three-day period, they did better than if it was four days or beyond. So again, a suggestion that getting people early on 
not late when they're on the ventilator and, and farther out, which again, by that point in time, they may have their own immune response and probably, if that's the case, not adding much antibody onto it. Um, but again, early is better. And that's earlier in, in with the uh, emergency use authorization, that's once somebody is hospitalized, they can have access. Is that? And that's correct. So again, okay. when we were talking about the expanded access program, the EAP, that was hospitalized patients. When we were talking about the EUA, the emergency use authorization, the FDA again specifically states hospitalized patients. So uh, they have not given this emergency use authorization for, let's say, prophylactic transfusions of somebody who uh, comes into the emergency room, oh yeah, they got COVID-19 infection, but they're not sick enough to be admitted, so we're going to send them home. That's, again, not the population that they've given uh, approval or their clearance under this emergency use authorization to, to transfuse the plasma. For more COVID-19 education resources, visit mayocliniclab.com forward slash education dash COVID dash 19. I'm going to circle back to something you brought up earlier with the one unit, uh, the people that got higher, tighter, did better. Does that mean for us in practicing, if we're in a period of shortage, like you're saying, and there's only low titer available, and I realize, I guess, if we're dealing in a period of shortage, uh, I'm not sure how much product's going to be around, but is the ideal to transfuse two units of convalescent plasma in that context? We don't know. Uh, I mean... So again, it does appear that the amount of antibody is influencing outcomes. So I think empirically, it sort of would make sense if you think about it, that yeah, maybe that's the case, but you're not gonna be able to somehow take two, you know, is two low titer units equal to one high titer? Is three, is four, is five, is it one and a half? I mean, we don't know because once again, we're not actually titering any of these units. We don't actually have that information. We just have that uh, signal to cutoff ratio. I think uh, that's going to be somewhat up to the clinical judgment. I think you're going to need to evaluate the patient. Can they tolerate the volume, especially if they have underlying pulmonary disease because of their COVID-19 infection. So I think that's going to be a bit of that lovely um, art of medicine. So we're going to have to make that determination. And I think you hit upon the other piece. You're going to have to look at inventory and what you have available. Because, you know, are you going to give your last two units to this one patient? Or are you going to give your last two units to the two patients, right? Even though they're low titer units. There's not good guidance at this point on that. Yeah, I really like that you've circled this conversation back to it. It highlights, although a lot of things are new that we're talking about and, and are evolving, you're still bringing us back to some transfusion medicine fundamentals are really, uh, we should not be forgetting those. So in other words, is our patient able to tolerate the treatment and the also the concept of uh, inventory management and the ethics, the bioethics that get involved with that in terms mm -hmm. of just resourcing of that. I was wondering now, you know, we've talked about and recapped some of the literature about what we have known, and now we're starting to dip into areas that we just don't have data for. So I'm curious mm -hmm. if you could elaborate a little bit about what are those remaining questions, and I, I know there are many, but what are some of the ones that you're particularly keen on interested to, to figure out? Well, you know, personally, 
does this really work? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to state that same, man. I'm going to make that question because we have some evidence from the EAP. We have some evidence from some small randomized controlled trials that suggest there's a signal. But what we need really are the larger, adequately powered randomized controlled trials to sort of be more definitive with regard to this. That are, again, using products that are defined in the content so that we can answer some of those sorts of questions. I think there's still some uncertainty about efficacy. Again, there's signal that suggests that there's a benefit, but I'd like some stronger data. If we start moving on from there, then we need to start looking at other things, such as the timing of these. So when should it? Is it, you know, again, some suggestion from some things within three days of diagnosis. Beyond that, you're not going to achieve benefit. But again, that wasn't what the EAP was designed to do. So we'll need to look again in those randomized controlled trials. What's going on there? Is there a benefit? What is that cutoff? Okay. I think there's still a need to look at specific patient populations. So, you know, right now, I think the belief is that those people that are very far along in their disease, that is, they are already on a ventilator, are unlikely to derive benefit versus those people that are admitted, but not yet on a ventilator. They still may need respiratory support. They still may be on oxygen. They still may be on uh, BiPAP or something like that, but not intubated on the ventilator. So again, does it offer any benefit to those people on the ventilator? Again, some of the randomized controlled trials will, will get to that. Then there's this whole other piece where there are trials out there that are working that are looking at prophylactic transfusions, right? So if you transfuse convalescent plasma to individuals who have been exposed, whether that's healthcare workers or potentially family members living in a household with somebody that's infected, transfusing convalescent plasma versus a placebo, does that derive benefit? Does that help them avoid becoming infections? Does that decrease complications or severity of infections? So I think those questions all still need to be answered. And I'm looking forward to, um, hopefully, we get the answers from the clinical trials. I will say that uh, a number of the clinical trials were experiencing difficulties in enrollment, sort of amongst the good news, bad news thing, right? The bad news is that we're seeing an increasing frequency of the disease, especially as we move into the fall season, and we're seeing increases in different parts of the country. The good news of that is that some of the randomized controlled trials are active in those areas. So that means that there's um, increased enrollment after sort of things slowing down a bit. You know, I can't help but thinking as you're talking through it and uh, listing off these areas, you're really interested for the questions. A lot of them kind of touch on what data we've been trying to get so far, but we just haven't had, you know, the uh, correct design of the study. And I think it gets at the idea of how uh, study design actually can enable and also or inhibit certain questions to be asked and answered. And I think probably for the student listeners out there, this really is probably a, a perfect example on uh, where you can bring this as a case study to uh, your statistics class, your medical statistics class, and talk about the different sort of designs of, of medical research and, and how they can play a role in, in the question that's being asked. And again, I think another part is the, the timing of things. So some of these clinical trials opened up, for example, on the East Coast as things were slowing down. Back to what you just mentioned about trial design, there is a group that's out there that's working with 
um, all the various randomized controlled trials because of the concern of maybe they couldn't achieve their recruitment and enrollment targets each individual trial, looking to try to work out. So amongst these desperate and different clinical trials, can we agree upon data that we're collecting, outcomes that we're monitoring, standardize that across those clinical trials such that if we have these five trials and they don't achieve their enrollment targets so that they cannot uh, individually answer this question, maybe we can aggregate data, might not be able to answer all the questions that these trials were designed to answer, but maybe we can answer some of the questions by aggregating the data if we're asking the same questions, collecting the same data, and sort of having at least some similarities into how we're handling the patients. Oh, that's brilliant. So, you know, we're making sure up front that we're all looking at apples <laughs> and calling it the same so they can all be aggregated as some kind of a, a meta-analysis. Yeah, so there is work going on trying to, to work to standardize some of that stuff. Claudia Cohn and some other folks in, in the blood banking community are working on that. That's brilliant. So this kind of transitions to my last question is, what additional therapies now are out there on the horizon you think that are, that are being worked about? I mean, we just want to kind of put on the, everybody's dashboard. You know, I can't discuss vaccines or medications, but let's think about what we're talking about here in the, in the convalescent plasma, right? Which is antibodies, the passive immunization of individuals who are infected with the disease, hopefully giving them neutralizing antibodies to decrease their viral spread, decrease the severity of their infection, help clear their infection. So, um, you know, there are companies that are working on developing uh, monoclonal antibodies, potentially for administration, where they're screening uh, neutralizing antibodies and attempting to, through hybridoma technology, create these very potent antibodies. Uh, so there are companies working on those. There are companies, the plasma collection and fractionating companies, they are working to collect donors and also hopefully create Hyperimmune globulins, probably not going to be equivalent to, let's say, what they do with RH immune globulin, where you're actually going to expose somebody to the, to the antigen and, and generate a big response, but rather going back to those people that have been infected, uh, and at least while they have high titers, collecting them and then trying to pool those plasma donations and create essentially an IVIG, an intravenous immunoglobulin that is going to contain these. So people are working to create those, and there are trials that will be looking to utilize those both again in a prophylactic setting, so administering them potentially to healthcare workers or others, maybe at-risk individuals in uh, nursing homes, as well as those that are seeking to design products that would then be used in trials that would be more therapeutic, uh, treating individuals that came in. Personally, I sort of view um, convalescent plasma as potentially a transitional product that we'll use until such time as maybe we do have hyperimmune globulins or uh, concentrated immune globulins that are available to give. And by doing that, you know, then this whole issue of, well, what's the tighter of the unit, right? Goes away because we're going to be pooling things. We're going to be manufacturing things. We can come up with standardized dosing in that realm and we can uh, potentially eliminate significant volumes that people may not be able to tolerate from the plasma that you might have to give them. So again, those are out there. People are working on them. A number of companies are working on them, and it will be uh, interesting to see where those go. 
That's brilliant. We've been rounding with Dr. Jeffrey Winters. Dr. Winters, thank you for taking the time to give us an update on convalescent plasma and where we are today. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you, everybody. Stay safe. Please wear a mask. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Music